You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, Karina. Hi, Pippa. So today we're talking about a word that hits hard. And it's one that we feel is especially urgent for Canadians to understand well right now. Right. The word is genocide. I think the first thing to understand about this word is that when a state officially recognizes a historical crime as genocide, there's a lot of weight behind the word, right? So when you hear it or when you see it in the news, it should catch your attention. Yeah. So um, the term was first recognized and defined as a crime under international law in 1948, which is, of course, right after the end of World War II. I think the Holocaust is the most infamous example that comes to mind of genocide that most of us are familiar with in the Western world, at least. Mm -hmm. I was actually quite surprised in my research to learn that the word genocide was coined in the 1940s. I think I assumed it would have been like a much older word. Yeah, me too. Yeah. A Jewish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin is credited with coining the word in his book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. And he called it a modern word for an old crime, which I really like. Mm hmm. He combined the Greek genos, meaning a race or a people, and the Latin word sedere, becoming the suffix side, meaning to kill. Same suffix that gives us pesticide, homicide, insecticide. Yeah. After World War II, Lemkin was instrumental in pushing the UN to recognize genocide, and he was successful. In 1948, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide was adopted officially. So we should probably go through what elements make a genocide a genocide? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Okay, so there's a list of five physical elements of the act of genocide. And those five elements can happen in either armed conflict or peacetime. And it includes killing or deliberately inflicting conditions which would kill members of a group, be it national, ethnic, racial, religious, causing serious bodily or mental harm, imposing measures that prevent births in that group, mm-hmm. and forcibly transferring the children of that group to another group. Right. So you can see that that definition encompasses acts that aren't just strictly killing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is called physical genocide is the, the killing part. But it also includes things like um, forcible sterilization and taking away children and other tactics that are referred to as biological genocide or reproductive genocide. So that's uh, the physical element and the biological element. But there's also a mental element that has to be present to call it a genocide, and that's the intent to destroy that group of people. And this element of intent, which is like a deliberate, organized targeting, uh, that element is obviously the hardest to prove. So this really specific definition sets genocide apart from a lot of other terms, Um So in popular usage, you might hear genocide used interchangeably with words or uh, phrases like pogrom or ethnic cleansing or uh, crime against humanity or holocaust. But there are actually all different things. That's interesting. The line between like ethnic cleansing and genocide specifically seems really hard to parse. Yeah, I thought so, too, uh, before I started researching this. Um, And it's that mental element of intent that sets the two apart. So ethnic cleansing is like a disorganized genocide. There's no provable intent to target and destroy a group of people, right? And it also doesn't have the legal implications that genocide does. 
Um, or like uh, this one surprised me. Take crimes against humanity. I think most people think genocide is a crime against humanity, like it's an umbrella term. Yeah. But legally, actually, it's not a crime against humanity. How? Yeah. So like a crime against humanity is systematic mass killing of many individuals. Oh. And genocide is not just about killing individuals. It's not um, concerned necessarily with like how many people are killed, but more about the destruction of the group, the mm. thing that binds them together. So uh, killing one individual is murder. Dropping a bomb on a city, killing lots of individuals is a crime against humanity. The Holocaust during World War II is a genocide. Side note, Holocaust is actually an interesting word in itself. Um, it's derived from a Greek word that is a translation of a Hebrew word, and it means a burnt sacrifice offered whole to God, which is, I mean, like, it became used to refer to the Holocaust, like, you know, the Holocaust, because of the mm -hmm. burnt part, and it was sort of a reference to the crematoria used in Nazi extermination camps. That's chilling. Yeah. This is a this is a very dark conversation it, we're having. I know it is. Um, my Google search history from this episode is a little worrying, but yeah. Okay, so considering all of these uh, quite specific narrow legal definitions, you can imagine the amount of finagling from heads of state on how they label things, oh, right? That yeah. have happened in their country. Totally. And genocide denial. On a cultural scale, not just heads of state, it's completely a thing, right? Like, we've all mm -hmm. heard of Holocaust deniers, yeah. right? And another example is um, there's a documented movement in Bosnia to deny that the Bosnian genocide in the 90s ever happened or Ooh. happened to quite the scale that, like, international courts found that it did. Wow. Um, that feels so recent to deny, hey? I know, right. Another more ongoing example is the situation with the Uyghurs, um, which is a, a mostly Muslim ethnic minority in China. And human rights groups right now are accusing China of crimes against humanity and of genocide, mm. um, namely uh, detaining Uyghurs, carrying out forced sterilization programs, forced labor, and mm. quote-unquote re-education camps, right? And Canada's House of Commons voted overwhelmingly to declare this a genocide, along with several other countries, including the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but China obviously denies that this is going on. Right. So today we are focusing on the Canadian context of this word. And I mean, this word has been a hot button issue in Canada for, for years now. Uh, first, there was in 2015 the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. They used the term, quote, cultural genocide. And... There are a few reasons why they might have chosen this wording, uh, which we'll get into later. But first and foremost, like this was not their mandate. They were, in fact, not allowed to make reference to the criminal liability of any person or organization. Mm. And then in 2019, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls final report came out and it used the word genocide with no caveats. Which is a big deal. Yeah. And this year, as remains have been recovered from the grounds of residential schools across the country, this conversation has really started up again, with some people saying, yes, what happened in Canada is a genocide, and other people obviously disagreeing. Right. 
So by cultural genocide, um, that means suppressing a culture, but not necessarily attempting to like physically kill or wipe out a people. Mm. So that might include things like destroying artifacts or banning languages or suppressing cultural activities or religious persecution. Um, another way of saying it might be forcible assimilation of one culture into another and uh, when the UN was drafting the Genocide Convention in the 40s, they apparently considered including cultural genocide, but didn't ultimately do it. So this idea of cultural genocide is not actually included in the UN definition. Yeah. And a reference to cultural genocide only ever appeared in a draft of UNDRIP, the, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, in the 90s, just in a draft. It didn't make it into the final document. Mm. And many scholars today argue that this is too narrow of a definition. Like if the definition of genocide is eradication of a group, then uh, every method of eradicating a group should be considered, including cultural. So does what happened in Canada, you know, meet the criteria of genocide period? Is it cultural genocide? Does the difference even really matter? Basically, it's a complicated topic and we wanted to talk to a lawyer for this episode. And... I genuinely can't think of a better guest than who I ended up speaking with. I had the total pleasure of speaking with Michelle Good. Uh, Michelle is a Cree writer, activist, and advocate, and a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. Her career is truly fascinating, if you'll allow me to do a quick bio. Uh, she worked for years in Indigenous organizations. Then she spent about 15 years practicing law, primarily defending residential school survivors. And then in 2020, she published her debut novel, Five Little Indians. It has since won uh, just about every major literary award that it could have, including the Governor General's Award for English Language Fiction. This book has been well received. <laughs> yeah. So I prepared myself mentally for a pretty heavy conversation with Michelle, right, uh, considering the topic. But then we had a a surprisingly lively chat. So uh, I just want to play a chunk of it now and then we're going to come back and talk about it. The first thing we normally do for the show is ask our guests to define the term in their own in their own words. So how do you define the term genocide? Well, you know, as a lawyer and a studier of history, I define genocide according to the genocide conventions. And I mean, I suppose if you wanted to sort of look at it outside of its legalistic definition, the way that I would describe it is the intentional destruction of a people. This is something that I have been talking about for as long as I can really remember as an adult anyway. And, uh, you know, and there is a real reluctance on the part of Canada to consider the actions of colonial governments as genocidal in nature. And they tried to soften the blow somewhat. Like finally, Beverly McLaughlin, the previous Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, articulated and described what happened at residential schools and other things as cultural genocide. Well, there's no such thing as cultural genocide. Genocide is genocide, period, the end. There are five definitions of genocide in the genocide conventions. And the fifth one is the wholesale removal of children from one group to another. Okay, there's no, no modifier. It doesn't say cultural or political genocide or purple genocide. It's just genocide. When you attach a modifier like cultural, 
it makes it sound like, oh, okay, you know, so we took away your language, right? And we, you know, we made your ceremonial practices unlawful. And, you know, we did all of those things. And so, you know, now we're going to apologize and try to make amends. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't bring home, for example, with the residential schools, that they were a life and death experience. Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the superintendent of Indian Affairs and a key person in the implementation and maintenance of the residential school system, posited in an essay that he believed that in many schools, upwards of 50% of the kids died. How could that not be genocide without the cultural modifier? So I really took issue when McLaughlin made the statement that it was cultural genocide because it sort of perpetuates this notion that it's something slightly different from genocide. And I reject that. I feel like people have started taking away the word cultural and just using the word genocide. What do you think is the value of that? Like, what does that actually concretely do for the people who are harmed? It acknowledges what happened. It acknowledges that there was an intentional effort to destroy a people, our people, me, <laughs> right? Um, every little kid that was hauled away to residential school, that they were a victim of genocide. And that kind of acknowledgement is so important because we didn't just experience residential schools as individuals, we experienced them collectively as a people. So it's really, really important that people understand that not just residential schools, but the entire colonial toolkit was basically a toolkit of genocidal instruments, if you will, one of which was the residential schools. When the UN defines genocide, like it matches so perfectly with what we're talking about in Canada, how as a nation have we, have we not used this word? How have we skirted around this definition? Well, you know, it's part of the entire agenda. And you know, Winston Churchill once said, gentlemen, history will be kind to us because I intend to write it. <laughs> and that's the reality of Canadian history is that we, we absorb Canadian history through a colonial lens. It's told through a colonial lens. So a colonizer is not going to say, yes, our practices were genocidal. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. Are there any legal ramifications or consequences of a country admitting that they've perpetrated a genocide? Yeah. Can you talk about what the difference is from a legal standpoint? Well, there is no such thing as cultural genocide. There is no legal basis to say, oh, here is how we define cultural genocide. The only thing there is, is the convention. And, you know, it's punishable. And, you know, it should be before the International Criminal Court, in my mind. What do you think would be the resulting benefit? Like, would it be helpful to heal if there was legal action? You know, these kids, they were beaten. There were kids that had needles stuck through their tongues as punishment for speaking their language. You know, they had their heads shaved as punishment. They were sexually assaulted. All of these things happened to these kids and they got to see justice not done. Okay. Nobody has brought these people to account for the crimes they committed against these children. I think it would be a huge thing for the healing and, you know, the sense that what happened to these kids mattered and that somebody is prepared to stand up and say how wrong it was. And 
it's really important to note that this isn't new to us. We've known about these burial sites forever, but nobody would listen and nobody would do anything. And when, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission gave their calls to action to the feds, there are six calls to action included in there from 71 through 76 under the heading Missing Children and Burial Information. Okay, it was basically a roadmap for how to address the situation of missing children and the absence of burial information. And um, Harper was the prime minister at the time and he just, they asked for a million and a half dollars to start that work. It's peanuts, it's pocket change. And they said, no, they just said, no. What do you think of, um, this is a bit of a baiting question I feel, but what do you think when people talk about this genocidal practice as historical dark chapter kind of talk. It's not history. You know, these, these kids that are in these unmarked graves, they have living relations. And not only that, but the impacts of these schools are impacts that we're feeling now and have been feeling since the first one opened and will still experience for many generations to come because of the absolute absence of support you know, in terms of being able to work collectively to resolve the kinds of impacts. When people do kind of make that argument that like, it's in the past, you know, are there practices today that you point to, to sort of line up with that genocide criterion that the UN set out? Child welfare. You know, do you know why the residential schools wound down? It certainly wasn't because the the government decided, oh, this is an awful thing and all these kids are dying. It wasn't that. It was because the, the staff that were working in the schools wanted to be treated like federal employees. They wanted all the benefits, the pensions, the health care benefits, all that stuff that other federal employees had. And the government said, mm, too expensive, so we're going to start winding down the schools. That happened in 1969. That's when they started winding down the schools. And so that's why you have the 60s scoop. And now we've got the child welfare system. I mean, are you familiar with birth alerts? Okay. So, you know, that was just a matter of course. Whenever an Indigenous woman had a child, social services was called. I mean, I have a story about a professor in Manitoba going in and having her baby and social services comes in and starts grilling her about her capacity to be a mother. So, yes, these genocidal practices continue now through the child welfare program where kids are being apprehended at a rate that is just mind boggling. There's this whole reality that exists just below the surface that the average Canadian, the average non-Indigenous Canadian is just not aware of. And I mean, I think over the years, you know, that's starting to change because we're becoming, through our own efforts, we're making sure that, that it's known. What do you think of the fact that we're still debating this word? The fact that this word still feels like a current topical, controversial thing today. Well, it doesn't feel controversial to me. You know, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. (laughs) My father had a saying and my father, um, one of his sayings was, sometimes you have to call a spade a goddamn shovel. You know, it's just a false narrative to be saying, oh, genocide, what, maybe it was genocide. It is so well documented. I mean, not only in government documentation, which still exists, and still we're going, oh, were we trying to wipe out a people? 
Hmm, I don't think we were trying to wipe out a people. It's nonsense. Of course, <laughs> of course they were trying to wipe us out. You know, the reason that this term has been defined in the first place is to ensure that there is an outcome, that there is recourse, that there is punishment. And if you look at the genocide conventions, conspiracy to commit genocide, attempt to commit genocide, complicity in genocide, they're all punishable. I'd love to see them punished. <laughs> you know, there needs to be some kind of reckoning. And that's what I feel about these burial sites is that they are a reckoning. To me, reckoning means bringing out the truth, bringing forward the truth. And so hopefully that will be the truth that will trigger reconciliation. But what I think is one of the biggest barriers to reconciliation, aside from the refusal to acknowledge the truth, is that non-Indigenous Canadians think that reconciliation can occur without there being any kind of fundamental change to their life or their relationship to Canada. And that's not the case. It means that we must have control of resources sufficient to sustain us. And so that means that something has got to give. Um, okay. Thank you for being game for this gigantic, heavy... Uh... I love genocide. <laughs> why, why do you like... Because it's the truth. It's the truth. And it's, it's, to me, it's a major stumbling block in terms of non-Indigenous Canadians being able to understand why we're so pissed off, right? Why we are so enraged by what's been done to us. Because it is genocide. And, you know, nobody in the world would think for a minute, they would never dream of saying something like, you know, oh, just forget about the Holocaust <laughs> or, you know, just forget about 911 for God's sake, right? It's over. It's in the past. I mean, come on. And so talking about genocide, I think will maybe inspire people to reconsider what they think they know because they don't know. I know it sounds so weird, but I kind of get what Michelle is saying when she's like, I love genocide. It's It's like... <laughs> It's so dark, right? But it's like, it was this weirdly obsessive research hole to be sucked down for mm -hmm. me. Um, I was uh, enthusiastically talking about genocide to my partner over breakfast the other day. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it For some reason, I don't know why, but it's it's one of those pieces of knowledge that it feels empowering to know more about. I know, it's like, incredibly powerful content. I feel very charged up about this. Mm -hmm. uh, so we mentioned birth alerts in the interview, and I just want to clarify for people who haven't heard of this, as I actually hadn't until just a few years ago. Um, so birth alerts are a practice where social services basically flag an expectant parent as a risk to their unborn child before the child is born, which often initiates an investigation from child welfare agencies. Their information is shared between the hospital and social services, and this is usually done without their knowledge, without their consent, and is often tied to their history, including if they have a history with child and family services, even in cases where they were in foster care themselves growing up. So that child in foster care grows up, has a kid, and that birth is flagged. Yeah, and this practice has been used historically, you know, disproportionately towards Indigenous parents. Uh, in fact, in BC, 58% of their birth alerts in 2018 were on Indigenous parents. Wow. That's yeah. huge. 
Recently, many provinces have actually stopped this practice, but it is still used in some parts of the country. And this, I guess, is is one piece of the larger trend that's been labeled the millennial scoop yeah. or sometimes the millennium scoop. Right. In your interview, Michelle mentioned the 60s scoop, the name for the removal of Indigenous kids from their homes and communities, and they were like adopted out into mostly non-Indigenous families in the 1960s. Right. So the millennial scoop was coined to point out that this practice never really stopped. Like, Indigenous children are still hugely overrepresented in the care system. And uh, I was... Uh, doing some reading for this episode, and I read an article in The Conversation by a Canadian genocide scholar named Andrew Wolford. And he was making and expanding on basically that same point, right? That that genocide isn't static or fixed. It's a process. Mm. And that a state carrying out genocide is responsive, and it changes tactics a lot. And um, that adhering to like the strict UN definition misses the point. And he wrote that genocide against indigenous peoples in Canada has just mutated, not ended. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think that point makes the question, will Canada ever be prosecuted for committing genocide even more complicated, right? Mm -hmm. This was one of my big questions when we got into researching for this episode. Like, is a head of state admitting to genocide, them literally admitting to the legally defined international crime of genocide, right? Right. Because Trudeau has acknowledged yeah. that what was reported in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls inquiry, he, he said it amounts to genocide. Yes, which comes very close to saying we acknowledge this is a genocide, right? Yeah. It basically is, but <laughs> there's still some softening. Yeah. And I mean, the fact is that governments rarely acknowledge that their own country has committed mass murder, right? Mm. So a head of state like Trudeau admitting to genocide is significant, but it's not as simple as admit to genocide in a press conference, be prosecuted for genocide, right? right. So um, let's talk about what could happen next. Um, since the discovery of the unmarked graves at multiple residential schools in the country, a group of lawyers has formally requested that the International Criminal Court investigate Canada for genocide. So a court could use Trudeau's acknowledgement of genocide as evidence if Canada is ever prosecuted. Mm. But the case would need to be taken up by The Hague. And actually prosecuting for genocide is a gigantic undertaking. And there are many thresholds that need to be reached for the process to even begin. Mm. And Remember, they would be literally prosecuting the individuals responsible, not just like Canada as a country. And The Hague won't prosecute low-level officials. They only prosecute heads of state and very high-ranking officials. So, like, just mm. for context, an example of a genocide that was actually carried through to prosecution and convictions is the Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. And the International Tribunal was formed in 1994 and dissolved in 2015. So it oh was God. a nearly 20-year process, dozens of individual trials and convictions, and it cost over a billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. 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 All this to say this would be a huge, a huge undertaking for Canada to be prosecuted for genocide. Right. And experts say it's pretty unlikely and that Trudeau's public acknowledgement that like uh, what was in the inquiry amounts to genocide uh, 
it's more of a symbolic gesture mm. because there's no official motion or bill to vote and declare this all as a genocide violating the UN treaty as of now, right? Trudeau just said the word at a press conference. Hmm. One thing we haven't mentioned is that Canada actually has our own definition of the word genocide. In Canada's Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act, it's, quote, an act or omission committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a group of persons. The important word there being omission. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls released a supplementary report all about their analysis of genocide, and they point out in this report that the failure to act can constitute genocidal conduct in this Canadian framing, right? Right. So while people might disagree whether or not Canada has or is perpetrating a genocide, it's really interesting to think that as a country, we have a more expansive definition of that word that we are beholden to. Yeah, it is. Um, I feel like this is an episode that could genuinely go on for an hour. (laughs) So maybe that's a good place to leave it. This episode was recorded on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Where Karina and I live is about a 50-minute drive from one residential school site, the Mohawk Institute, which is near Brantford, which closed in 1970. And about an hour and a half away is the Alnwick Industrial School near Peterborough, which closed in 1966. Yeah, it's important to remember that this isn't like deep in a history book like a long, long, long time ago. It, it's relatively recent. Yeah, and it didn't happen that far away. Yeah. And it's not like wrapped up neatly with a bow by any means. No, so many of these practices we've talked about continue to this day. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I got those locations via the interactive residential school map from the CBC, which we will link to in the show notes. Uh, I'll also note that this content can be really troubling. We'll be posting the details of the Residential Schools Resolution Health Support Programs hotline if you are or know residential school survivors of any generation who may need support. Thanks to everyone at TVO who makes this show possible, and thank you for listening. 